Hi, I'm Colette. I'm co-CEO and co-founder of The Inky List. Hello, I'm Mark and I'm equally co-CEO and co-founder of The Inky List. And to us, it's a matter of knowledge. Failure is often underrated. It's what you do with the failure that matters. I'm Kelly Kobach, founder of Beauty Matter. Perhaps it's human nature to accentuate our successes and hope we're not questioned about the failures. The truth is, success is often the result of a lot of mistakes. If you don't make a mistake, it probably means you're not taking risks, pushing beyond your comfort zone, or aiming high enough. Very often, founding stories are told through the lens of revisionist history, creating a perception of perfection that is rarely the truth. Let's face it, startups are messy. After a string of entrepreneurial non-starts, Colette Laxton and Mark Curry, the co-founders of The Inky List, saw a gap in the market and set out to build a brand to fill it. Informed by the past failures, the result, an instant hit. So Colette and Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to kind of dig into your story and sort of where you see Inky List going. Kelly, it's an absolute honor From a beauty veteran entrepreneur yourself, we're very excited to be here to talk to you. Thank you. As a way of setting the foundation for our conversation, can you share a bit about your backstory and how you came together as business partners? Yeah, very quickly. I've done lots of things in my career from scientist to teacher to commercial graduate to retailer into entrepreneurship part one, less successful into setting um, the Inky List up with Colette four years ago. Very succinct, Mark. So Mark's had a very checkered history, Kelly. I would say mine's a bit more traditional, although I did start life as a singer, which is a little bit random. But I've always been in beauty retail, going through the ranks from product development to brand marketing and really understanding the consumer and and how we can serve them. So the two of us together created something that has gone on to be a little bit special. I would say it's very special. But you know, launching beauty brands has become rather romanticized. You know, there's sort of this narrative that floats out there that you kind of build it and Estee Lauder comes with a billion dollar check, which we all know is the anomaly. The reality is really that building and scaling beauty brands is really hard work. And even when you check all the boxes, success often requires a little bit of luck. What do you attribute the success of the Inculus to? It's a number of things. And to your point, you can have the right idea at the wrong time. You can have the right time with the wrong execution. You can have the wrong retail partner. You can have the wrong name. You can be going after the wrong demographic. I think it's definitely a mix of all of those things. I think for us, timing is crucial. And from launching the brand and the idea, really understanding where the consumer is at that point and giving them something entirely relevant at that point point but also being sure that it's enduring and that that why of why you exist is as relevant now as it will be in 50 years time yeah and that's where we were very maniacal and focused early on because as we said we firmly believe it's a matter of knowledge and the reason why the brand exists is to spread the beauty of knowledge to the world making things simple to understand and easy to use and Everything that we did, particularly in the early days, I think the early days of the brand is key. You have to be sometimes psychotically focused on what the brand is about and why it exists and why people should be making a connection with you or not. And I think we do that and have done that consistently from 
everything we do in terms of the touch points, how we present the packs, teaching people how to say a name, everything that we do from a content perspective, everything hangs very centrally off the reason why the Inculist exists. And and we've kind of hammered that home at a time when consumers were wantonly curious and wanted just to suck up as much knowledge as possible in order to get a better outcome for their skincare in particular. But has it been easy, Kelly? No, no, no. Absolutely not easy. <laughs> it all. never is. No, it's not. <laughs> Nothing romantic here. <laughs> no, but also this is not the first brand that you guys built. And I think very often founding stories have a little bit of revisionist history. I'm not saying that you have revised your history at all. It, it serves a purpose, right? Because you need to find retailers and you need to raise money. So you need to present sort of this everything's working kind of narrative. And the Inky List is definitely sort of a runaway success. But I know this isn't the first brand you've launched. Do you think that those past, I don't want to call them failures because I want brands that look bigger than they are, seemed really successful and if you equate success with an exit, it didn't happen. So to that extent, there were failures, but there were huge learnings that sort of created my path to doing this. So do you think that those previous brands that haven't scaled the way the Inky List has scaled informed where you are today? Yeah, I think we're a little different to most founders and businesses in that, you know, our background is retail and we knew that we knew what it took to make things work in a retail space. And we knew a lot of new things in particular, and particularly from new companies and young companies that don't have the resources of the big boys, often don't meet your expectations and more often than not fail on a high frequency. And our whole business model in the early days was making sure that we tested, tried and learned what a consumer facing proposition is and was and how we could get to an optimal level so that at one point one would rise up and start to show those early signs of growth and that's where the inky list really rocketed off it was a portfolio approach initially wasn't it yeah and it wasn't even brands it was category opportunities whereby we then brought a brand to life in a way that we believe makes sense which is starting with why being clear on how it should exist and who it should exist for, and then everything else is a follow-on from there. And we believe in failing fast. I love the word fail. I think people see that negatively, but there's no way, you know, the Inculus would be where it was if we hadn't have tried those four other brands. We learned so much about the consumer. We learned so much about what to do and what not to do, more importantly. And I think people are so hard on themselves to think that everything has to be perfect for it to launch or it should be this certain way. And do you know what? To this day, we always say, you know, we don't always get it right. If, even right now on the Inculus, kind of four years in, sometimes we launch a product and people say, your instructions don't make sense. Now, we're a brand that delivers knowledge. So we say, right, okay, we hear you. And we change the design in the next pack run. Like, not everybody is perfect. And I think failing fast, learning really fast and taking that failure and learning from it and actioning on it is the best thing you can do. And I think we learned that really early on in our business. We made so many mistakes that actually it stood us in really good stead. And we're kind of a bit thicker skinned and kind of we're a bit more ready, actually, for the incubus, I would say. I think those early brands, at least I can speak for myself, there's so much emotion invested in what you've built. And I think once you get past doing it once, it becomes far less emotional and a little bit more 
you really view the business on sort of business metrics rather than like this emotional, like I've got to make this work moment, which there's a lot of freedom to that because being attached to a business that has either missed its opportunity doesn't mean it's a failure. It was too soon underfunded. I mean, there's a million reasons really good brands don't make it, but letting it go and knowing when to let it go, I think is really important too. Just being agnostic and following the consumer is the most important attributes. And if I reflect on just even within the Inculus and how the Inculus has evolved from a dozen products into kind of 50 odd products that it is today, there's been certain products I didn't want to let go. I didn't want to discontinue certain products because I thought it was the right thing. And, you know, it was me forcing it rather than the consumer being imparted with the knowledge and making the decision to buy or not buy. You know, that's ultimately what the business is about and so i completely buy the emotional argument in terms of insane decisions if you can get out of your own (laughs) way i think that's the key you know it's not about your ego if something fails it's not that you're a failure and we try and instill that within our team we love to test things and it doesn't always mean that they're always going to work but you just need to test them in a controlled way as minimal resource and cost as possible, but just get something out there. Try it. If it doesn't work, it's okay. Let's try something else. And that's always been our mentality. You you guys operate in the skincare category, which is super competitive to begin with. But then the subset of the skincare category with brands focused on sort of single ingredients with value propositions has become insanely crowded. But yet you've managed to break through the noise and differentiate the inky list. Like, How have you differentiated when there are so many brands sort of, I guess, running the same playbook? It's because of our why. So, you know, we're big fans of Simon Sinek and we don't think you should start with the what. So we didn't start the brand with let's do single ingredients at a great price point. We started with why should we exist? And the reason we exist is to make skincare simple to understand and easy to use. So that knowledge USP is the thing that we think that threads through everything. So whether we're doing ingredient-led skincare, whether we're offering a skincare support service with Askinki, whether we go into different categories, it all has that same why. It all starts with knowledge and helping to support the customer. And I think to your point, Kelly, you have to be able to create an ecosystem of success for a brand to exist. You have to be unmistakably clear to the consumer, why should this play a role in your lives? You equally need to be unmistakably clear to the retailers on why should this brand exist in their category and, you know, investors and so on and so forth. But I think we've been clear that, you know, knowledge not only connects consumers to products and drives conversion and great results, but it also enables a category not to be fixated on, well, is it a case of, you know, a consumer choosing between the arse or the ordinary Paula's choice or drunk elephant or, you know, name your brand. It's actually about, well, we want to grow the category organically because we believe that, more people would buy into skincare and different subcategories within skincare if they knew why it should be relevant for them and beneficial for them in the first instance. And I think we just had, you know, some things lined up that fell our way. I think luck was there because we were in a vaguely the right space, but we worked our butts off and tried and tested loads of different things in order to make sure that one of them worked. I also sort of forgot how you launched But, you know, after a decade of the sort of D2C revolution, you guys followed a different path. 
So four years ago, you know, brands were still sort of launching under the guise of being D to C first, but you launched retail first and even your brand website was driving traffic to your retail partner, which was Sephora, I believe at that time. Can you share a little bit about the role traditional brick and mortar and your relationship with your retailers? How did that help shape and grow the brand? Because it was definitely not the path brands were taking. And I would say that brands still aren't sort of, most of them are not retail first, but realize the importance of retail now. So I think this is where we were clear very early on why the brand existed, but we were very clear on what our strengths are. We say we are as black and white as our packs and we are dead self-aware. We know what we're great at. We know what we're absolutely horrific at. And, you know, with not much money and resource, we had to double down on where we thought we had the best ability to play to our strengths. And that was knowing retail, knowing retail partnerships, having great relationships with Sephora globally, you know, from Artemis and Priya and Sam and all the guys in the regions. And we just knew what they were up against and what they were trying to do. And we knew how we could play a role for them and support category growth in a unique way for Sephora. What we were absolutely terrible at and still individually are, but we're learning every day is DTC. And we didn't have the resource to kind of to hire the right people and team of people at the time to get after that opportunity. And to be blunt, you know, COVID exacerbated that. It just made us even more aware of how bad we were. It was a case of really, you know, I think I always remember Artemis saying the joy of missing out is almost like being clear on who you are, what you are, and therefore playing the hand that you've got rather than trying to be in the most fashionable space or be in the trendiest Mm. space or forcing a story that quite frankly doesn't exist. And I think what was wonderful for us and, you know, it'd be interesting to learn from other brands that have decided to go the route that we have was we launched on a very small budget and actually using the power of Sephora to tell our brand story and help shape the brand and the brand awareness worked really, really well for us. So working kind of in the kitchen, as they say, with Sephora to really understand who we are and how to show up We use the power of Sephora and actually for a while we're able to kind of get by maybe on less marketing spend because, you know, if you're a D2C brand, it's all on you. It's all on you to get that brand awareness. It's all on you to get that traffic to your website. And it felt like the right moment. Ironically, when COVID hit, we were sort of 18 months into our journey, nearly two years with Sephora. And actually it felt the right time to start launching our DTC and really start to get into that world of how do we start to own the customer? Because for two years, we were sending people directly to Sephora and, you know, we weren't being able to have a more loyal relationship with them. So we found it extremely fruitful on our path because we just know what we're great at, lean into what we're great at. And then as we've evolved, the DTC piece came. You have some fantastic investors, but what was the investment reaction to that strategy of having a DTC strategy initially? We're always given the feedback that we're always a little different. And I think... I'm not sure that's good or bad, but yeah, we'll take, take it. Take it how you like. But I think it made sense. It was just logical. We were putting time, effort, energy and resource behind a channel that made sense on paper. If you can kind of look at the strengths and weaknesses of what we had as a both as a brand and as a company at the light, that particular life stage in time. And, you know, we had the right 
insight and initial data points to kind of validate it. There was no hope. There was no gut instinct from anyone. It was just making sensible, small decisions, but having a very clear vision and strategy in how we wanted to bring it to life and holding each other to account on it. Yeah, I think, you know, so many times when people go to raise money, they tell investors what they want to hear. It almost puts you at a disadvantage for what the relationship is going to be post-investment if you kind of don't own what you are in your strengths, even if it's not what kind of is on trend at the moment, because even in investors, like there are trends in investing. Yeah, I agree. I think come hell or high water, there was always likely to be a coming to Damascus moment. There's always a point. And if you've raised money on a bit more of an inflated claim or position or hypothesis, and it doesn't work out, there'll be a point in time where you're going to need more money and you're going to have to change your story, or you're going to have some uncomfortable conversations with your investors sooner than that. But we always say it's a bit liberating being the brand we are because we are black and white like our plaques. We make things simple to understand and easy to use. And that plays out exactly how we have relationships, whether it's with industry guys who are friends like you, whether it's our retail partners, whether it's our suppliers, it's a pretty straight bat, including our investors. And therefore, everyone's dead clear on what we are, what we're not, and you know what we're able to do. The difference is how quickly do we want to accelerate our vision versus where we currently are in our final life stage. We want to take this opportunity to share an organization that matters to us. Pact Collective is a nonprofit on a mission to make beauty packaging more sustainable. Did you know that more than 120 billion beauty packages are produced every year, and most of them end up in landfills or in our oceans? If you're a beauty brand, supplier, or retailer, you can join them by becoming a member today. You'll get access to exclusive education and webinars, networking with other brands, and participation in PAC's hard-to-recycle packaging collection programs. Check out PACCollective.org for more information. Together, we can end packaging waste in the beauty industry. You haven't just sort of switched the D to C switch on, so to speak. I mean, you guys have built a really immersive D2C experience. So, you know, it doesn't feel purely transactional. It feels like there's definitely more intention there. Can you explain sort of how you approached going kind of from zero and building out a D2C experience and kind of what was that impetus? I mean, I'm assuming COVID played a big part of sort of fast tracking that. COVID was the exact push we needed, I'd say. We're quick, we're agile, we've got a great team of very passionate people. And that moment that we knew that COVID was going to be a real thing, now Mark's a virologist, so we kind of had the heads up early on that this wasn't just going to be a six-week flu and then we were going to go back to normal. We made that call really quickly. So we built our entire website in eight weeks from start to finish. And we just said, right, what do we want this to be? Of course, we needed it to generate revenue, but we had an incredible business with Sephora and launching on Sephora.com in COVID. Oh my goodness, you know, it was wild. So I don't think we put the pressure on that our DTC had to be, you know, 20% of our revenue from day one. I think we came from a place of knowledge and said, how can we provide value to people? 
So we launched our Ask Inky service, we launched our recipe builder and said, how do we effectively make this the brand home? If our social channels are giving people snippets of knowledge and giving them value in a really bite-sized way, how do we make the home of the brand, the website, where people can come, get support, get time to browse, they can build their own recipe. You know, we've done over four and a half million recipes today. That is a really, really valuable tool for people. So we came with that knowledge first thinking in terms of the website and then said, right, what is the role of our DTC versus retail? Because there's no point in them fighting each other. So it's really about everybody's first touch point into our brand should be Sephora. You know, we want people to test and learn, try and store, have it as their add-on in their Sephora basket. But when they want to start to build that recipe where they really want to have a bit more of an in-depth relationship with the brand, that's when they can come to our brand home and feel like they've got that more bespoke, personalised service. Yeah, and I think whilst we weren't a DTC-led brand, I think we've always been a consumer-led brand. And therefore, we were always clear with the retailers how we wanted consumers to show up where and when. But we've also been very, we're still a digitally native brand. And all our social channels have been bleating brand message and if you case you've missed it it's about spreading knowledge <laughs> to the world and therefore you know our skincare is a good example so this is a service that answers any skincare questions agnostic of brand agnostic of who you are where you are what skin you have or haven't so that was almost before we even had our own transactional website that was live in the late part of 2019 and even as a small business i think three out of the first 12 people that were in the business were dedicated to that as a proposition and therefore kind of building a website around that was made easier because of all of the other work that we've done in that digital space. So you guys also recently have delved into pop-ups. So you've done one in London. Did you do one in New York or are you going to do one in New York or am I making that up? No, no. We, we've been treading carefully this year. I think, you know, nobody knew how this year was going to go in terms of opening up. And the UK was a little bit more advanced in terms of COVID recovery earlier this year. So we did our kind of first homeland pop-up, which is an immersive space where people could learn about their skin. And it was a kind of a real digital approach where we did everything digitally, but you went through the the service and through the, the pop-up itself. It's definitely something we want to explore more. It was a real moment for us. Now we have a field team in Sephora stores and it's amazing to be able to speak to Sephora customers. But I think having that brand moment was really important for us, especially post-COVID, to understand where people are at with skin, you know, they've got a very different relationship to their skincare than pre-COVID. You know, they've been much more indulgent, much more kind of learning about them and their skin and their needs. And, you know, the relationship we're having with a lot of our customers is a lot deeper now versus, you know, they were just sort of cleaning their face ready to put makeup on previously. So it was a great learning experience for us in the UK, but definitely something we would like to roll out. The difficulty is, is, is the US is a very big place. So we wouldn't necessarily just want to be in New York because that isn't necessarily a representation of the entire US. It isn't. <laughs> Sorry, Kenny. <laughs> no, it definitely isn't. <laughs> So, you know, there might be an opportunity next year where we start to visit different areas and get to know our consumers on a deeper level. Not sure whether we could do a pop-up in every location. I don't think my FD would allow that. But yeah, it was an incredible experience for us to get out back into the real world, that's for sure. You know, I think one of the interesting things is 
having been in the industry a couple of decades is the speed at which brands can scale these days. And you're definitely one of them. I mean, you have made it's public knowledge at this point that you're profitable, which congratulations, because that is also very difficult to achieve. And you're on track to reach $100 million in sales this year. And you made it really clear that your intention is to build a billion dollar brand. You know, what does this path look like? And what are you most excited about sort of at this juncture? No, I think, again, it comes back down to do we have the right to even have that level of ambition. And if we kind of look at what we set out to do and what we're currently doing and is resonated with consumers, it absolutely is that knowledge provider and answering questions and being people's first step into skincare or hacker and or people's return to maybe an ingredient that they might not have connected well with in the past. And so if you take that premise and you say, okay, well, we're meaningfully in the US, we're meaningfully in the UK, we're really, you know, just getting going in earnest in terms of localization in Europe, but we've completely forgotten about the entirety of Asia, if we're completely blunt, because we've had to focus and rightly so in the past. So is the Inculist as relevant in Asia as it is in the West? Absolutely. We just need to make sure that we show up as the Asian equivalent of the Inculist and not a cut and paste job, which we don't think is right for the market. And then subsequently with categories as well. Yes, we've launched into hair care now in the US and that's in its early days and got really good early signs. But if I think on multiple categories, you know, what is the consumer penetration of various categories in the West and in the East? And is knowledge a lever that could support increased penetration of consumers having uptake in those categories, then we have a right to play there as well as there's a there's an inky list INCI on any health, beauty, well-being product on the planet. I think it's just about the when, when's the right time. You know, we've been very clear, you know, we're less than four years old and to get to that kind of milestone has been you know, a little chaotic in a good way, but it's been a wild ride. And I think the 100 million to the billion is going to have to be very, very intentional about, you know, where do we go regionally at what time, you know, what's the right phasing of that? What's the right time to go into other categories? Because, you know, we're finding with, with hair care specifically, it's on a very different trajectory to skin. It's way further behind. People's understanding of their scalp yeah. and hair and the hair categories are total feels really, you know, kind of five years behind skincare. So it's just understanding, you know, what's the right time for us? Because we're quite ambitious. We're quite ferocious um, in terms of, let's do it, let's do it all, let's go everywhere. But actually, that's not the right thing for the brand. And to Mark's point on the, the regional piece, you know, we want to make sure that we localise in key. You know, even the UK to North America, you would believe the difference of consumer in terms of the SKUs they like, the ingredients they like, the way they like to be spoken to, the way they like to be advertised to. And here's us thinking, you know, roughly similar demographic. You kind of think they would be quite similar. They are not. So there's a big learning for us to do around each market, what categories work, what SKUs work, how the way they are communicated to. But for us, the fact that we've managed to get as far as we've got to on exclusive Sephora distribution and in a single category, we've got reasons to believe that, you know, we can go on and scale this to hopefully somewhere near that big goal. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, we're evolving as well. And we're always disingenuous and everyone hates that we say we're the world's worst DTC people or whatever. But <laughs> what we're actually building in the background is, you know, a really interesting insight platform 
to kind of really infer and inform where should we go next and how should we go into certain positions and spaces next? You know, we've said we've had four and a half million recipes, nearly a million conversations with people answering their skincare and, and hair care concerns. Then, you know, we've got an invaluable data set and a very broad insight pool from which we're kind of informing what we do next in a very meaningful way than just me and Colette sat in a room with a category opportunity and kind of pulling together a brand DNA and pulling 12 products. And oh, those stick. were the days, Mom. Exactly. Way easier. <laughs> You've achieved a tremendous traction and kind of this growth that beauty brands strive for. But like, what's been the biggest challenge in scaling the business to date? I mean, we focused a lot on the kind of consumer facing elements marketing, brand, understanding the consumer. But you also, you don't get to $100 million without having a very sound operational infrastructure. Yeah, made even more difficult by COVID. So, you know, the supply chain, all the unsexy stuff that no one sees, you know, you don't see the the calls that go on early morning Asian time and late, like West Coast time on Things like where are the ingredients, where are the rules, where are the packs, where are the this, that and the other transport times going up. I think, you know, the supply chain in particular has really been a big sticky wicket in terms of our growth trajectory. I think we'd have, we'd have grown faster if it was a little bit more liquid. Now, that's not to say we didn't try. As we said, we very early on spotted that, you know, it wasn't going to be a one stop shop in March 2020. And immediately localized all sourcing as much as possible to Europe and North America. But even now we're still, you know, at the mercy of global headwinds when it comes to a supply chain perspective. But that's an obvious answer. Another obvious answer is people and just getting the right people in the right role for the right money that you got at the time has been a significant challenge, particularly when it was all done virtually in kind of the growth scale mode where you just looking at a screen and hoping to form a connection with people. But that's not the same as kind of sitting with them, being with them, working with them, idea, brainstorming with them. So like making sure we've got the right team in order to kind of fulfill the the ambition and the plan is was significantly difficult. I think the right team with the right direction. Mark and I, as you can probably tell, Kelly are quite hands-on. And I think for us, it's just being really clear on the direction that we want the business to go in. And then once everybody's clear, getting out their way, just get out their way and let them be the experts that they are. Because to our point, our DTC team say acronyms that I don't understand. You know, our TikTok team are telling me that if they do this dance, it's going to work. And there it goes. It's viral. And I'm like, it's a dance. What's happening? So, you know, really, I'm just letting those experts, you know, lead the way. As long as they're really, really clear on where you're going as a business has been key, I would say, especially virtually. So I have one last question. And this, you know, I kind of feel like I have to ask it, even though it's such an obvious one, because you're both such a wealth of knowledge. But like, what advice would you give to other entrepreneurs considering to launch a beauty brand, specifically sort of in today's environment? I don't know about you, you guys, you know, have been in the industry a while as well, but I've never seen the beauty sector more competitive than it is. Yeah, just going back to first principles, like, why are you doing it? Why you? And why are you going to be different than anything else that's on the market at the moment? That's not to say that it has to be different for different sake and you're almost trying to kind of meet a need that doesn't exist. 
it's okay to be better at service or one particular part of something. But unless you're clear on why that thing should exist, why you are the best person or why you are the best team to do it, and why you have a clear point of difference versus some other guys around you, I think you need to get those foundations right. And then everything else is just a test and learn. And then two things to add to that, I would say, stay in your lane. I think that's been one of the things that has helped us, you know, consistency, you know, we were being told, you know, you should be a little bit more colourful or, you know, there's this really trending meme. I'm like, that's not inky. So, you know, stay in your lane. You know, there are other brands doing amazing things that are just not relevant to you. So back to Artemis's Jomo, have have that joy to think that's so wonderful. But you know what? That's not our brand. And I think once you start to look elsewhere, that's where you can kind of lose the DNA of the brand. So I'd add that to kind of when you start on that journey. So if you're really clear on your why, you stay in your lane. And then thirdly, our mantra in life is stay in the game because we've been bankrupt nearly twice. We had a global pandemic. It's been an absolute wild ride. And sometimes you do want to give up. But I would say once you're on that journey, just stay in the game, be creative as long as you possibly can. And if you can fight another day, you can fight another year. Mark and Colette, thank you so much for your time today. And also just like kind of the transparency in your story. And good luck. I have no doubt you'll hit a billion dollars. If anyone can do it, you guys can. Thank you so much, Kelly. You can uh, cheers with us when we do. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thank you, Kelly. Hi, I'm Colette. And I am Mark. And to us, it's a matter of knowledge. We believe better knowledge leads to better decisions about all things skin, hair, and beauty. For Colette and Mark, it's a matter of knowledge. Appearances are sometimes not what they seem. The Inky List is definitely a runaway success, on its way to hitting $100 million in revenue in just four years. However, this is no one-hit wonder. This success is informed by a series of unsuccessful brand launches. Transparency is not just a talking point for Colette and Mark. It's how they navigate the world. Rather than sharing a picture-perfect founding story, They use their self-deprecating humor to share the knowledge that failure informs success. You just have to keep trying. So in the end, it's a matter of knowledge. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. If you liked what you heard, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media.